Have you guys ever been on a plane where it's gone through severe turbulence? Yeah, it's not fun, is it? You're just crying out to the Lord, take me. <laughs> or, or if you're going to take me, help me. Uh, somebody told me, you know, that if the plane was going down, they'd get up and preach the gospel. I'd just be in my seat screaming. Ah! Anyways, last week, well, no, I got... No, what I wanted to say before that is, so what we do here is uh, we simply teach the Bible simply. And by that, we work through a book of the, the Bible, and we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, letting God's word speak to us. So we are in the book of Acts today, and uh, we are coming to the beginning of Acts chapter 11. But for those of you that weren't with us last week, I'd just like to give you a little biblical context so that what we're going to say today will help you to understand the bigger picture. Now, last week we looked at chapter 10 and the remarkable uh, story of the Apostle Peter's uh, encounter uh, with Cornelius' household, who was a Roman centurion. And so we know that the Romans were the occupying army of the day. We know that he is a centurion. We know that in the Jewish mind, they would have a natural hatred for the Romans, uh, being the occupiers of their country. On top of that, we have a religious layer where the Jews felt that God's dealing with them was exclusively with Israel. They didn't even really clue in to the fact that God had a plan for people that were outside the Jewish nation. They tended to see the promises of God and their Messiah exclusively as the restoration of the, um, the nation of Israel. And so here in chapter 10, we have this incredible story of a Gentile Roman centurion being directed by an angel of God to go and send for Peter, who is in the area. He's a little bit south of Caesarea. He is in the city of Joppa. And the, <clears throat> excuse me. the significance of the city of Joppa is, is that we find it in the book of Jonah, because that's where Jonah wanted to depart from so that he, could, so that he wouldn't have to take the word of the Lord to the dreaded Assyrians. And so here we are, fast forward a thousand years, and God says to Peter at the exact same city, take the word of the Lord to the Gentiles. So we know the story. Peter goes, he takes the word. They receive the word of God. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. And Peter is seeing all of this unfold to him as a Jew. Now, for us who read the Bible 2,000 years later, we go, well, of course that happened. I mean, after all, Peter is an apostle, one of the original 12 disciples, an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. But you have to remember that Peter was a good Jew. And everything that he saw and everything that he experienced, he experienced as a Jew. Now, just think about Peter's life. If we think about Looking at Peter's life through the Gospels, we can see how this man thought. First of all, in Luke 5, 
You remember the story where he fished all night and Jesus came on the scene in the morning and said, hey, go back out for a while and cast your nets on this side. Peter says, you know, I am the expert. Nevertheless, Lord, at your command, doesn't say it in the text, but it's like just to humor you, to show you that I know fishing and you don't, I will go out and cast off the net. And of course, the nets are so full that he's got to call his friends from uh, around to bring in the catch because it's sinking the boat. And Peter, at that moment, is witnessing this event, and he says to the Lord Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He had an essential revelation of who Jesus was and who he was. And if you want to be a Christian and you claim to be a Christian, you must have the same, I must have the same essential revelation, that Jesus is Lord and I'm a sinner. <laughs> you don't become a Christian any other way. And Peter had this revelation, to which the Lord Jesus then said, Peter, follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. We also know that he witnessed the power of the Lord Jesus Christ personally when Jesus walked on the earth. He saw the Lord walking on water. He even experienced it for a brief moment before he sank. He saw the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. He witnessed the blind uh, getting sight and seeing. He saw the lame walk. He saw the demon possessed set free. He saw lepers healed. And he was also given power with the 12 and then with the 70 to go, which Jesus empowered him to do. And they came back rejoicing, telling the Lord, hey, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He experienced all of that. Then in uh, the Gospels, Peter was the one that confessed Jesus as the Lord the Messiah, because Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that the, uh, who do the people say that the son of man is, and who do you say that I am? And, G and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, you know what, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. That's an incredible revelation. It was a spiritual revelation. And then Jesus proceeded to tell them about his mission. The Son of Man has to go to Jerusalem, and there he is going to suffer and die. And then Peter rebuked the Lord and said, Lord, may this never happen to you. I mean, you are the Son of the living God. And Peter was personally rebuked by the Lord Jesus, where the Lord said to Peter, get, me, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, that is a unique thing that Peter experienced that no other disciple experienced, where his Lord and Savior looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. That's not a good day at the office. Peter personally witnessed the, transfig the transfiguration of Jesus. He also denied the Lord Jesus three times. And then Jesus personally restored Peter three times with questions on the shores of the Galilee. Peter was an eyewitness of the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell on the 120 
where he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and he was the first to preach the first message in Jerusalem where over 3,000 people came to faith. And then in another chapter, just next chapter, he preaches again and another 2,000 are added. And yet, Peter was still on the road to seeing the bigger picture that God had for him personally, for the Jews collectively, and for the world in its entirety. And so what we said last week is that Peter had a worldview that God changed. He had to go from just a Jewish worldview to a Christ worldview. He had to go from an Israeli worldview to a worldview that God had for the entire world. Now, we all have a worldview. Everyone in this room today has a worldview. You think about life in a certain way, and you determine what is reality and true, what is of value, because of your worldview. It's been shaped and molded by all the influences that we allow into our lives. A worldview, in short, is the comprehensive conception of the world from a specific standpoint. The one thing we need to make really clear about a worldview is no one's neutral. There's no neutrality in a worldview. You have one. You might not talk about it. Others might talk about it incessantly. But the fact of the matter is, is you have your mind made up on certain things about what is real and important and what isn't. An individual's worldview is the big picture, a harmony of all your beliefs about the world. It's a way of understanding reality. It's the daily, the, the, uh, daily decisions that we make about life. And therefore, it's extremely important. Now, as Christians, we assume that we should have a Christian worldview. That is a comprehensive conception of the world from a biblical point of view. For the Bible is the word of God, and therefore it informs the Christian of what is ultimately reality, even if it disagrees with the world. We would always take the default position that God's word is true and all men are liars. Amen? And that doesn't mean that what everybody says is lying. It simply means that when it disagrees with God's word, we agree with God's word. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 12, verse 2. He said, do not be conformed to this world. The Amplified Bible says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And then he goes on to say, don't be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is the goal. That's the road that we have as followers of Jesus. We are being transformed by the renewing of our mind to constantly see our life, our family, our job, everything from a Christian worldview. To the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote this in chapter 10, verse 5. 
2 Corinthians. He said, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, to have a worldview that is based upon God's word requires hard thinking. Christians should not be lazy in their pursuit of truth and thinking. And I'll tell you why. Because if you carry a phone, is there anyone in this entire universe that does not carry a phone? God bless you. There is hope for the world. But the fact of the matter is, is that every time we turn on a television, look at our phone, look at social media, we are getting bombarded with a worldview. And so we have to think to say, just because it's on social media doesn't mean that it's, it doesn't have something to think about that's good. It just means that we need to wade through what exactly is being said before we make a decision on it. To the Philippians, Paul wrote this. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Thinking is hard work. And we should work hard at thinking, which I was never really accused of in school. But at the time, I was not a believer in the Lord Jesus. It was actually when I became a believer that I really began to realize that I needed to use the things that God had given me for his glory. But thinking is hard work. But it is a required discipline of the Christian mind. And so I said, there are three questions that we should ask ourselves. One, what do you believe? Two, why do you believe it? Why do you believe what you believe? Three, why do you think it's true? And I've always encouraged, I've been trying to encourage the church to use that as a witnessing strategy when you're talking to friends and people who don't know the Lord. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? All right, they might tell you what they are. You could ask, well, <clears throat> Uh, why, why do you believe that? And thirdly, you can say, so why do you believe that that's true? And if you can drill down into things, you can witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because everything that we believe is built upon the person of Jesus Christ. If you can discredit Jesus, we've believed in vain. That's the short story. So Peter had to wrestle with all these assumptions and he came to the realization that the gospel is for the whole world, not just for the Jews. And so at the end of Acts chapter 10, verse 45, it gives us the reaction of the Jewish believers that were with Paul at Cornelius' household. They're called the circumcision because the, the Jews circumcised the male children at eight days of age. So... It says, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. 
as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured on the Gentiles also. In other words, the Jewish believers that were with Peter were astonished, amazed that the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. Now, we stand back because we're mostly Gentiles in this room, and we go, well, of course God loves the Gentiles. You know, for the Jews, that wasn't that clear. And it says that they were amazed and astonished that God's love was for the Gentiles as well. Now, if you have your Bibles, look at Acts chapter 11, the first three verses, because we have, once again, a mention of the Jewish believers, the circumcision. It says, now the apostles, verse 1, and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. All right, so here's the context for what we're going to look at today. At the end of chapter 10, those of the circumcision, the Jewish believers, are astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles. Now we come to the beginning of chapter 11. Peter has returned from his Gentile ministry. He's now back in Jerusalem with all the Jewish believers. And word has preceded him. Word has gotten out. It's already back in Jerusalem waiting for him that the Jewish believers are saying, Peter, you're a good Jew. What are you doing going into a Gentile home and having fellowship with them? The news that the Gentiles had received the word of God was big news among the Jewish believers. Now, when you read the Bible, I wish that there would have been a full stop right then and there where it says in verse 1, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had uh, also received the word of God. I wish it was just full stop, period. And then the next sentence would have said, Yay, God! Great news! You love the Gentiles as much as you love the Jews. The Gentiles are turning to Christ. We're rejoicing with Peter. But it doesn't say that. It says that they contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. How dare you, Peter? How dare you, a good Jew, going in to a Gentile home? You know that that's not Jewish custom and belief. And these Jewish believers now are going to have to have their worldview changed to get in line with God's and this is what happens in the rest of the story. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 4, and I'm going to read to verse 18. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning saying, and basically now he's just going to rehearse exactly what we read in chapter 10 last week. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. And when I heard wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
But I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has any, at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn on, up again into the heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, uh, who said to them, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you the words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Peter gives them the exact same story as we have read in chapter 10. The vision on the rooftop. The unclean animals and creeping things coming down. The voice saying to the good Jew, rise and kill and eat. Peter saying, oh, I don't, I don't do that. I'm a Jew. I'm kosher. Three times the voice said, what God has called good, don't call common or unclean. Then you have the assurance of the Holy Spirit's leading, saying there's three men outside the door looking for you. Do not be concerned. Go with them. I have sent them. He goes, and then he preaches to Cornelius' household and all the people that are assembled there, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and they are baptized. Now, this is so simple, but this is so profound. Because the story behind the story is simply this. Peter is laying down the grace of God. And here is the crux of what Peter is saying to these Jewish believers. God's grace is not for a select few. It is for everyone and anyone who wants to take hold of it. In other words, God's grace, God's love, God's favor is not for a select few. It is for all people everywhere in this world. Let's put it this way. The Jewish believers excelled with faith believing that God extending grace to Israel was absolutely true. But they didn't think anyone outside of Israel were worthy of the same thing that they had received from God. And so I'd like to just take a few remaining minutes, and I'd like to talk to you today about one of the greatest truths that our entire faith is built upon, and that is the grace of God. Because what Peter 
is saying to these Jews is he, and it's interesting in my Bible, I have a subtitle. It's not inspired, by the way. It's just, it says, Peter defends the grace of God. And then verses 4 to 18. You know, the hymn writer, John Newton, when reflecting upon his life, John Newton was an English sailor who joined the slaving boats of the British Empire when he was a young boy. He sailed on those boats, the slave ships of the British Empire, who cargoed human souls for profit and sold them into misery and slavery. When he got saved, he thought about the love of God that had saved him and transformed him and made him a preacher of the gospel, you know, he wrote that amazing hymn called Amazing Grace. I'd like to just refresh your pure minds as you think about the words that John Newton wrote when he thinks about the love of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. "'Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home." I think it's so, I think it's just almost impossible to improve upon that hymn. That first stanza should resonate in the heart of every believer. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And the older you get, the sweeter the sound. Grace is a constant theme in the Bible. People who are not followers of the Lord Jesus trip over it. They don't understand the greatest gift that God has ever given to us, the greatest truth that everything that we do as followers of Jesus is based upon this truth called grace. Grace is seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that when Jesus came, he was full of what? Grace and truth. The word translated grace in the New Testament comes from the Greek word charis, which means favor, blessing, or kindness. Grace is something that should be much more than uh, something we just know intellectually or theo theologically. I hope that grace has been an experience in your life. That it is something that you've received and that you've experienced Grace is often tried to be defined because it's so full, it's so beautiful, it's so almost impossible to put into words Christ's expense. Grace is God choosing to bless us. The Bible tells us that grace is something that has saved us. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And this is where 
Many, many people trip over the Christian message because they feel that the way to God is good works. They, they think that if they do enough good things, that good works should give them entry into the kingdom of God, to heaven. And of course, that makes perfect sense to us because all of us enjoy being around people who enjoy living good lives, being good neighbors, doing the right thing. But when it comes to our spiritual state before God, the Bible makes a very simple but powerful declaration for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is not one person in the world that has not sinned. And therefore, sin must be judged. And because God loves us so much and wants us to have a relationship with him, he sent Jesus Christ to take the sins of the world, or let's get more personal, my sin and your sin, upon him. And it is appropriated only by faith. And that faith comes to us through the medium or the channel of God's grace. And so God says to us, by grace you've been saved. It's not of yourself. None of us are going to work our way into heaven. As a matter of fact, Isaiah the prophet, when looking upon the nation of Israel, he said to Israel, your good works are like dirty rags before me. It doesn't mean that good works are uh, not desirable. It says compared to the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, there is nothing that we could do to work our way there. And so I have family members that don't know the Lord, and this concept of grace drives them up around the bin because they are convinced in their own mind that they are righteous in themselves. But grace tells us that we need a different way to get there. It's the only way anybody can enter into a relationship with God it's because of his grace towards us. It is the undeserved gift towards all who put their trust in him. No preferences are given to a particular ethnicity, color, gender. Doesn't matter who you are, where you are in this world. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter. God's grace is available to every human being in this planet in this world and all you need to really realize is that if you are a human being living on the planet earth you qualify for the grace of god now god is the instigator of grace and it is god's grace that brought you here it is god's grace that is reaching out to you it is God's grace that is speaking to you. It is God's grace that is saying, I love you. It is God's grace that said, Jesus has paid the price for your sin. It is God's grace that is pulling and drawing you 
into the invitation to become a follower of his if you will but receive the grace of God. God gives both mercy and grace, but they're not the same. Mercy withholds the punishment that is what we justly deserve. Grace gives us the blessings that we don't deserve. In mercy, God chose to cancel our debt of sin by sacrificing his perfect son, the Lord Jesus, on our behalf. Grace is now that we are in him, he pours gift upon gift, favor upon favor. And what is the favor of the Lord? The best definition of the word is demonstrated delight. The favor of God can be described as the tangible evidence that a person has the approval of the Lord. I want to say something to you that labor under legalism, perfectionism, and guilt today. And all of us do to some degree. It's kind of a default position of the human life. God's favor rests upon you. Not because of anything that you've done, not because of anything that you will achieve, but because of Christ Jesus who has saved you, loved you, and brought into his family, the grace of God, the favor of God is upon you today. Favor is closely related to grace in the Bible. To know the favor of God is to know the blessing of God. The Bible tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. But those who do know God and have saving faith, the Bible says that you are declared by God's Son righteous in his sight. Do you understand that? You are righteous in the sight of God today. And not only, is, not, not only that, but God is seeking you out to pour more grace on your life and more favor on your life because God's grace didn't stop at salvation. It continues to be pour upon more, higher and higher and higher. God's grace is without limit. <clears throat> Pastor Chuck Smith, who I guess would be the first pastor in the Calvary Chapel movement, because when he came to a little chapel called Calvary Chapel, and he said, I was raised in a Christian home, and from the very beginning of my life, I can't ever remember a time where I wasn't a Christian. As a matter of fact, if people tell me and ask me, when did you become a Christian, Chuck? He says, I don't know if I could really give you a definitive answer, but he says, there's one thing I can tell you that's definitive. I can remember the time that God opened my eyes and showed me his grace and confirmed in me that I didn't have to labor or work or strive to be good enough for God, but that by God's grace, it was all taken care of. He said that was one of the most life-changing and defining times in his life. And therefore, that's why we carry his book out on the book table called Why Grace Changes Everything. It is my humble opinion as we close today 
and our worship team, come on up here. I'll get out of your way. That many, many Christians, when you get down to really exploring the roots of things, they don't have a grasp on the grace of God. They, they think that somehow God is displeased with them or that they're not doing enough or that somehow they're not measuring up. The Bible is really clear on this. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So I'd like to just give you a few things to think about before we sing that great hymn in closing today, Amazing Grace. God's grace is for everyone, even for the people that we don't like in our lives. God loves those people. He loves people that have done you wrong. He loves people that have hurt you. He loves people that you don't like. And he loves them as unconditionally as he loves you. I think that we need to take a page out of the book of Acts. And we have to realize that there's nobody on the face of this earth that God's grace is not available to. I'm not sure what your story is, but if you had met me pre-Christ, you would have said, oh, that's Baldwin. He is beyond the grace of God. But here I am by the grace of God. There's nobody beyond the grace of God. Let's not get a worldview that it's us for no more. Bless us, Lord. And the second thing that I'd like to challenge you with today is have you drank at the fountain of grace lately? I mean, if you're sitting here and you got these lies from the devil going through your head that you are, you're unworthy, or Dale, if you knew me, or you knew my thoughts, or if you knew this about me, let me tell you something. I know you better than you know yourselves because I'm just like you. If you knew everything that went through my head and my mind, and if you saw everything that I did, you'd go, well, Dale is a great sinner. And I would say I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior, and I have found great grace. And I think that each and every one of us today we need a good talking to about the grace of God, how wonderful and amazing it is. And I want to leave today with a challenge. I want you to focus upon the greatness of God's grace rather than the present intensity of your feelings. And we have feelings, right? And if we live by our feelings, what's our feelings going to tell us? You are a miserable worm. Die. <laughs> but in Christ, that's not who we are. 
We are the righteousness of God. We are saved. We have the spirit of God that dwells in us. And so I want you this morning to drink deeply of the grace of God. I want you to just bathe yourself in who Christ is and what he has done for you. And so this morning, we're going to sing Amazing Grace in closing. I don't want you to stand. I want you to just close your Bibles. I want you to just, if I could encourage you, become prayerful and reflective. And just close your eyes and sing this song as a declaration of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And I want you to sing it softly. I want you to sing it as a prayer, a declaration of prayer to the Lord. And so the worship team is just going to lead us, and I want you to just, just drink it in. Just sit at the fountain of God's grace this morning and be encouraged of what he has done for you and not what you're doing for him. All right? So, Milena, if you'd lead us in that blessed and wonderful hymn, we're just going to sing that softly before we leave. All right? We ready to do this? Amen. sing together.
amazing grace. I pray this morning it will be exactly that to you as you leave. Refreshed, renewed, amazing, amazing. If you'd like to talk to me about the amazing grace of God, you've got questions, I'm around. Uh, be glad to chat with you before you go. Just seek me out. So now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all and all the Lord's people said, Amen. Amen. Please go and get your children and enjoy the rest of this beautiful long weekend. Thank you.